I'd like to ask you what you know about the women who took part in the 1916 Rising. I wouldn't know an awful lot about them by that. I mean, I wouldn't know their names now, but uh, listening to all the, the, the information they've got recently in the media, they were very active, that's for sure. And uh, I was looking last night, as, as the, I wasn't uh, tuned into the, 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 the leaders' debate at all last night. I was looking at the programme of T.J. Carr. That was the story of Kathleen Lynn. And uh, she was very active, the lady that, that uh, set up the, the, the first children's hospital in Dublin, baby's hospital in Dublin uh, in... Uh, I can't remember the name of the place it was, but uh, she was involved in 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 uh, an awful lot of different things, and uh, all her colleagues, all, all the other people, the the the, the 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 big figures around that time. It was difficult times. They were uh, they were they were they were very brave. They did what they had to do, but they, they had to do it. There was there was there was no other alternative. They just did it. You're welcome along to the second in our series on women and 1916. It's a series that Near FM are running in conjunction with the uh, Northside Community Law and Mediation Service. And it's a, it's a three-parter. So last week we looked at uh, women in 1916 and we were looking at the economic situation in Dublin at the time of the rising and also looking at Countess Markovich and other women who were active in the rising and the... Um, the foundation of Cumann and you know how that arose and the women that were involved in that. The idea of the series is to look at not just the women that we all know, so not to just look at Countess Markovich and what we know of Margaret Skinner now would be another woman we would know about in The Rising, but also to expand it out and to see what was like life really like for women at the time of the rising, what was life like um, for everybody at the time of the rising. So um, hopefully people got something out of it last week and it was a very involved discussion as well. So the the procedure for the night is we have two speakers here and we will have each speaker will speak for 10 minutes. In between, we will have music from Fergus Russell, who was here last week as well, and he'll sing some uh, traditional songs and he'll tell you a little story about them that are connected in some way to Dublin history and to the history of the 1916 rising so I think everybody will agree it was great last week to hear him live. Okay so we have two speakers here with us tonight um, the first speaker is Porik Yates the second speaker is Donna Cooney. We're going to go to Porik first and Porik is a journalist and a trade union activist. He's also the author of the book Lockout, which is seen as the kind of definitive work on the 1913 lockout. And he's written a trilogy on Dublin City, which starts from the beginning, the onset of World War I to the end of the Civil War. And those books are called A City in Wartime, A City in Turmoil, and A City in Civil War. The Porik tonight is going to talk to us about um, criminality, law and punishment in the period around 1916 and the byline to his uh, talk is the women were worse than the men. So we'll have to see that now. So Porik Gates. Thanks Debbie. Um, <coughs> no thanks uh, for coming. Uh, yeah no I, I think I can prove my case fairly easily and quickly. Uh, normally the ratio of male to female offenders in Ireland or in Dublin at least is about four or five to one. But uniquely in, in 1916, in uh, in May 1916 and June 1916, 
those figures were almost turned on their head. And the number of women uh, prosecuted and convicted for criminal offences in May 1916 constituted nearly 58% of a total. And in June, they were still running at 27% of a total. Now, the vast majority of those women arrested uh, were charged with illegal possession. And what happened basically was during the rising, on the very first day of the rising, um, three members of the DMP were killed, one of them by a woman, we think, Countess Markovic, and there is evidence to suggest that she did shoot Constable Lehif. Um, and uh, the, the DMP were ordered to remain in barracks, basically, by the government. They are only going to get in the way of the military and to stay there until it was over, which they duly did. Uh, but once the rising was over, once uh, order was restored, uh, the first thing the DMP did was to go and search in some streets, literally house to house, and they'd say, you go into a house or into a tenement and say, Miss O'Reilly, that's a nice fur coat you have. Can I see the receipt, please? And if she didn't have a receipt, she was in trouble. Uh, and that's where most of the convictions came. There were a few exceptions. Uh, there was a woman who was arrested, you can find her details here now, a man and a woman arrested uh, with a cartload of loot, and uh, the man probably won't be able to find it now. Um, the man uh, was sentenced to prison and the woman was fined. Um, the police magistrates at the time uh, have a reputation, mainly because most of the accounts we have of them come from trade union activists who were arrested and convicted or come from uh, nationalists and Republicans who were arrested and convicted of, and sent to prison. But uh, looking at the figures in more detail, it's obvious that the police magistrates did actually have some compassion uh, and they were very reluctant to imprison either young people or women particularly married women, presumably because most of those women had children. So if you look at the police magistrate records, uh, as I've been doing, you will find that in the case of uh, women, it was usually bail. Uh, in the case of children, it was usually bail on the parents. Uh, a lot of these kids are obviously out of control, uh, but rather than send them off to Artain or to Glen Cree or one of the other reformatories, uh, there was a tendency, as far as possible, to put them on bail. So a, pa a parent... Usually a mother, but sometimes a father, would be told they have to find bail of five to ten pounds uh, or their little Jimmy, or, uh, is usually a boy, it's very rarely a girl, would be sent off to prison. And the hope was that the, the parents would then keep some sort of control on the children uh, that the police couldn't do. Um, so there was, a, there was a, a policy, very clear if you look at the records, of the police magistrates trying to manage the problem. And it was a huge problem because uh, although Dublin only had 9% of the population of Dublin, less than 9% actually, uh, it accounted for the majority of children sent to reformatories. And of those children, uh, over 80% were sent to prison for what were called crimes related to hunger. Uh, and it's hard to overemphasize the degree of uh, deprivation in the city uh, because um, uh, living standards were, were so low. Uh, a child born in Dublin in 1916 or 1914 had a life expectancy of 45. Now, if they lived uh, long enough, if they lived to be 50, uh, they had a chance of living to be 61. Um, but there was a major reform that took place uh, throughout these islands, uh, just before the First World War, which transformed people's lives. And I would argue it was possibly 
the most important single social reform introduced on these islands uh, in the 20th century. And it was the introduction of the old age pension by David Lloyd George. Now, David Lloyd George is mainly remembered as the man who sent the Black and Tans, which he did, and was probably not one of his better decisions. But he also introduced uh, the old age pension in 1908, and it came into force by 1911. Uh, in those days, to get an old age pension, you had to be 70. Now, the reason there were two reasons why he picked uh, 70. One is that the av average life expectancy in the United Kingdom, of which we were then part, was 70. So he knew he wouldn't have to pay it to too many people, and it was affordable. And the other reason was that there was a census system introduced in 1841. So by 1911, they should have a record of everyone who was 70. Um, but the, the census system didn't come in in Ireland until uh, effectively after the famine, the 1850s. So uh, you'll find a lot of Irish people did not have a birth cert or a way of proving their age. And if you look, uh, some of you, you know, advise you go online, look at the census for 1901, if you can track your, your grandparents or great-grandparents in it, and then check the census for 1911, you will find that quite a lot of them age quite dramatically between those two years. <laughs> Except for some women. Some women actually got younger. Or, or certainly didn't age by 10 years. They tended to be slightly better off women who maybe could afford uh, to, you know, be younger than, than their counterparts. But uh, the, the reality is that uh, in 1911, 27% uh, of all people getting an old age pension on these islands uh, were Irish, uh, even though the Irish only formed 9% of the total population of these islands. So you had a three times greater chance of reaching 70 if you lived in Ireland than you had if you lived in England, Scotland and Wales. Um, and one of the reasons, they, they, they quite right, rightly get criticised for it, but one of the reasons why the Fine Gael government, the first Fine Gael government, or I should say Commonwealth Nail government, the first free state government, is criticised for cutting the old age pension. But one of the reasons they cut the old age pension is they couldn't afford to pay it at the old British rates. Um, but uh, that, that had a very significant uh, effect because most working class people in Dublin, and that would include my own family, um, had a 90% chance of dying in the workhouse before the introduction of the old age pension. Uh, but if we look at the First World War, there's a very dramatic drop in that. The number of aged and infirm in the Dublin workhouses, the South and North Dublin Union, fell between 1916 and 1919 uh, by a third. And in fact, the population workhouse fell so much uh, that when the British Army decided to take over the North Dublin Union as a barracks during the War of Independence, they were able to accommodate everybody quite comfortably in the South Dublin Union. So there was a, a significant improvement in people's living standards in that period, which tends uh, to be forgotten. So uh, that's uh, I'm mentioning those things because they are unusual. Um, some things haven't changed, though. I was looking at some of the figures, just in case anyone is interested... These figures only came to light fairly recently. They're uh, a thing called the Dublin Prisoners' Books, and they're volumes, they're double ledgers, about this big when you open them out. Um, and uh, they contain about 30,000 entries. And they basically have the name, the occupation, the age, the address, and the alleged offence and the sentence of everybody arrested by the Dublin Metropolitan Police between 1905 and 1918, 
with a gap between about 1907 and 1911. But they include the lockout, for example. They include the, the World War, most of the World War. They include the conscription crisis. They include the Easter Rising and so on. So they're enormously useful in telling us a lot about life in the city and crime in the city. And, and they show us the, the various patterns. One pattern I found very interesting was if you look at the looting and even look at other periods uh, in the war years, is the number of youngsters who were members of teenage gangs who were involved in everything from robbing sweets to housebreaking uh, to coal thieves, coal gangs. Um, and a lot of them worked with women. Um, well, at least I assume they work with women, because if you say, uh, I've got a typical example here, if you can find it, of... Um, of a, a group of youngsters, I'm not going to name them, they, the names will all be up online very shortly, but you've got a series of youngsters here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven youngsters here, schoolboys or no occupation age between 11 and 15, all charged with housebreaking, all living in Ben Burb Street, and below them you have three, uh, sorry, two married, three married women and one widow living in the same houses or adjoining houses all the youngsters are charged with housebreaking all of the women are charged with illegal possession or receiving and that's a pattern which continued long after that and probably still goes on today and it's a pattern that goes back probably to the 18th century as well um it was a feature of, of life but it was a way in which people made a living um but as i say the introduction of the beginnings the bare bones of a welfare state were giving people other options, other possible ways of, of surviving uh, and was very, very important. And I would argue probably the old age pensions, the introduction of old age pensions and the introduction of unemployment benefit uh, probably made a, a bigger impact on the lives of ordinary people in Dublin and other parts of the country uh, than the war did or the Easter Rising. Um, so I'm just giving you a slightly different uh, angle on what life was like in the city and, and how people survived during those years. So I think I've, I've reached my 10-minute yeah. limit, so I'll just stop at that, but if people have questions, you know. Okay. Okay, we're going to have a song um, from Fergus, Fergus Russell, who was here last week, and Fergus is going to introduce you to the song. Um, I'm going to... Uh, one of the bands of, of um, the people of Dublin, or the young men of Dublin, of course, the recruiting sergeants, they, were, uh, they had their favourite places to stand, and when young lads would be destitute and maybe in debt or in trouble over something, they often signed up and they were the, the recruiting sergeants were regarded with great hatred by nationalists who saw them as being um, characters who, who just preyed on the, 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 the poverty and the deprivation that was in Dublin at the time. And um, Paddy Carney, who fought in 1916, was one of the great songwriters of the time. He had a great sarcastic sort of a wit, and most of the songs he wrote have are loaded with sarcasm. And this is uh, one song he wrote. Most of you will have heard this song before. <clears throat> oh, Sergeant William Bailey was a man of high renown. In search of young recruits, well, he used to scour the town. His face was full and swarthy, of medals he had forty, and ribbons on his chest, red, white, and blue. Twas he that looked a hero, could make the people stare, oh, as he stood on Dunphy's corner. Turtle 
Oh, Sergeant William Bailey on Dunphy Corner stands. Toora loora 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 loo. Enticing Dublin young fellas to die in Fardin lands. Toora loora 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 loo. Thank you, Fergus. Okay, so to the second half of our talk as well. Donna Cooney uh, most recently was an election candidate for the Green Party, so you'll recognise her from the posters. And uh, Donna was previously a Dublin City Councillor from 90, January 96 to 99, is that right? Found about, yeah. Yeah, and the Evening Herald voted you best councillor for attendance, apparently. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> At least I show up. <laughs> and Donna's been active on many uh, local issues as well, uh, particularly around the preservation of Dublin Bay and the development of Dublin Port. And, and, and so Donna is here tonight to talk about her great-grand-aunt, Elizabeth O'Farrell, who was um, a very important female figure in the Rising and her part in uh, the uh, standoff at the GPO and in the final surrender of Porrig Pierce as well. We spoke briefly about it um, last week at last week's talk. So Donna is just going to tell you a little bit um, about the role and the history um, of her great granite. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought it was more a general thing yeah. about women, but yeah, I can definitely talk about her. But um, I suppose it's it's in context of what you were saying about the poverty. Um, I be, because of my my um, growing up with 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 that story and with that heritage and knowing that, I became interested in why why and looking more deeply into the history. And then because of my involvement with the 1916 relatives, um, you know, and as people are looking for research, I'm researching more for helping them with some research they're doing in their families. And you look at it and you look at the fact that people were living, uh, you know, in, in terrible poverty, that, uh, you know, that we did have the um, infant mortality was the highest in Europe. And you might say that, you know, that things were getting better, but uh, we still had that infant mortality. The fact that people would even sign up to fight with the British forces because, you know, they had no other um, option, you know, but to take the, the, the shilling because they they were so poor that they were starving to death. The fact that the looting was for food because they didn't have food. You know, I mean, I think that uh, the, the reasons I'm looking at the reasons behind, say, my, my relative and other people's uh, involvement um, in 1916 was because of that poverty and because they couldn't see that there was another option. They had looked at other options. Um, she herself had really just became interested in Irish culture, like a lot of them and like a lot of women they involved, uh, they got interested in Irish culture, joined a literary society, learned to speak Irish. Um, uh, that was a literary society set up by Maud Gone, And from that, they started to take pride in their, their, in their, their identity as being Irish. I think that people had, you know, a sense that they didn't feel that there was a sense of identity in being Irish. And from that, they thought that they needed to have autonomy. You know, they needed to have equality in order to, uh, to um, go on. And they didn't see that there was a means politically uh, not only did women not have the vote, but most ordinary people didn't have a vote either. You had to be, you know, of a certain standing and have property and wealth. So uh, with that, uh, I, th I don't think what they did was lawless in, in, from their point of view because uh, they didn't recognise the, the government that was there. They didn't recognise the control. So from that, you know, uh, from that society form coming them on and then they started training 
they would go out, uh, cycle out to... Um, uh, she was born in Sir John Rogerson's Key in North Inner City, an ordinary woman, uh, ordinary um, um, working class family, but not, you know, they had enough money. Um, you know, they, they weren't living in poverty. They, you know, they had clothes and shoes and education. And um, but uh, around her, she was living in the in the inner city. She would have seen all the poverty. But they basically used to cycle out and uh, um, out to um, Countess Markovich a bit of training and they used to do some training as well uh, in various she was in uh, coming on on the Southside branch which is uh, was on Harcourt Street they met first of all uh, the first meeting was on um, Parnell Street but so many of them turned up for this they decided to make two branches so they split up and they set one up then on, on the south side of the city as well and uh, on Easter morning, herself and Julia Grennan were brought by um, Countess Martovich uh, to Liberty Hall to meet Connolly, who we've just heard the, the song about. And uh, Countess Martovich said you can trust her and Julia Grennan, who was her lifelong friend. They'd been in school together and everything. You can trust them, you know, really to, to with your life. You can trust them to do anything. So they were both set off in different dispatches. And... Um, uh, Julia um, Julia Graham was sent off in one way and Elizabeth the Farrell was sent off uh, to Galway and um, three different places in Galway and Athenry and to Lee Mellows to tell them that the basically that was on because the word had gone out that it was off you know and uh, they were sent around then uh, to tell everybody that it was back on so managed to wake her way back then um, to the GPO and um, um, I think she used to joke uh, that her uh, circle Julia because they weren't able to bring any guns because they were getting through the city then that they arrived only armed with umbrellas you know so um, but uh, they would have had training you know because they didn't only train in bandaging and first aid they did train um, in, 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 in armaments but um, she didn't actually have a weapon and a lot of the people poor people wouldn't have had a weapon either they wouldn't have been able to afford to buy a, a gun and if they hadn't managed to get ones off the gun running um, um Previously, they, they wouldn't have had it. They wouldn't have all have had a gun. Um, so, uh, uh, so there she was then. And, and from the the GPO, she was sent out in various dispatches. Um, you know, um, over over the days. Um, at one stage, she went out and she was sent out to stop um, uh, firing at a first aid. Um, um, sent her and she went up and uh, all she had then was just a letter over her head and she was waving the letter over her head saying you know stop stop mm. and um, a bayonet was put up to her chest and um, she just didn't stop anyway she said no and she said you're, you're firing at the moment on a first aid um, you, you know um, centre so but not they were all like that all the women were very brave and in accounts if you read the history and the accounts and the witness accounts it was often the women that kept a very cool head and led some people and led a lot of the men out of dangerous situations when maybe the young men may have you know got you know a bit panicked or, or worried because when you think of it they were all volunteers they weren't actually people that were in an army very few of them had any actual military real military training and um, then they are you know straight from their home into a situation where you know that there's being fired upon they never believed I don't think that they ever believed that they would, you know, fired on, on, on the GPO. It had only just been built. I know mostly about the GPO because that's a garrison. But I don't think they believed they'd be firing at it so heavily. So, you know, there was smoke and fire and, you know, and, and people being shot all around them. And um, and the women did seem to keep their head and uh, a lot of them didn't want to leave. You know, on the Thursday night, it seemed as if, you know, there was it was getting really bad and the coming them on were asked to leave. And um, some of them stayed behind. And in fact, the ones that the, the last batch that left were um, 
a, a local woman here actually, Maeve O'Leary's uh, grandmother and um, a, a few of the, the, the women from Cumberland on who set off to Jervis Street Hospital and they themselves took a, a very treacherous journey. You know, at one stage they thought that that was just it and they were given the last rites in, one, in, in, in a laneway um, making their way down to, to, to Jervis Street Hospital. And uh, so the three women that insisted on remaining till the very end um, were um, Winifred Carney, uh, Julia Grennan and, and Elizabeth O'Farrell. And then they left the GPO on the Friday. It was really, it looked as if it was just going to, because it was gunpowder and everything in the base, that it was just going to blow up. The whole place was in ruins and they really had to leave. And uh, they left by Henry uh, Place and made their way then, um, they went down down Henry Street and then Henry Place and made their way um, onto Moore Street. And there was three dispatches that left and um, uh, Elizabeth O'Farrell was in the last dispatch and um, she records that herself because Patrick Pierce went around to make sure that everybody had left and nobody was left behind. And uh, they made their way uh, down to Moore Street and then um, she tripped and fell just outside, um, just outside uh, number ten Moore Street. Um, they had knocked in and uh, into that, and in fact, a, a young girl got killed in number ten Moore Street, one of the houses that they want to knock down, and uh, made their way um, in. And when she arrived, um, James Connolly was already there, lying in the parlour, and. Um, so she went in and she set up a first aid unit in there uh, with Julia Grennan and, and Winifred and they, they tended to the wounded. Um, so the wounded were all kept there in the parlour uh, downstairs. A few mattresses were laid out for them and the, the family that lived there, even though they'd lost their daughter, were um, willing to help them and, you know, cook some food. And uh, the rest of them then borrowed... Um, uh, able-bodied um, people borrowed their way through the night on different levels all the way through um, the terrace of Moore Street and um, they took occupation up in all of the terrace of Moore Street but it was felt safer that uh, they would have the leaders in number 16 because it was in the centre because they were getting fired there was a barricade down the end of Moore Street and Parnell Street and the British Army there were firing from that side they were also firing from the rooftop of the rotunda so it was felt safer to keep the leadership in the centre of the building and uh, James Connolly was moved with difficulty on a stretcher through all the um, holes at the different levels that they had burrowed in um, and he was in great pain at this stage you know and um, they also any food that they had managed to bring with them uh, they were told that they weren't to loot and none of them did you know none of them were loot they were on strict orders of no looting but uh, food was, was fair game I think you know so uh, they did bring food with them uh, there's um, down th- through the, the, the very through there and and um, then when they decided to uh, surrender, um, Padraig Pierce had looked out. He went down to a further building. That night, um, himself and his brother had slept um, upstairs in number 10. And uh, the first last time that they spent some time together there. And then... Um, they had seen some uh, civilians being killed and they'd heard reports that the very, very heavy civilian casualties. And at that stage, um, for the sake of, of civilian casualties, they decided to surrender. And um, uh, so um, it was. they asked uh, Elizabeth O'Farrell if she would uh, take the surrender note out. Well, first of all, it wasn't a surrender. It was a verbal uh, no, note of surrender. So she went off uh, to uh, ask if they could have a truce. And uh, she made her way um, down um, uh, to, to the barricade and... Um, Basically, they were fired. She had a wave flag, but they had just seen people being shot down, waving a red flag. So she really was taking her life in her hands to do that. And then when she got down, um, uh, they, she was they 
she was brought over the barricade and then she was they was she was asked how was everybody and how was first of all they were going to send her back and said you know you should want to get the women out of there because the place is going to be every you know it's going to mm. be flattened you know so you'd want to get the women out and she said there were three women left and then he said I better go and ask a commander so she spoke to the commander and he said listen I want an unconditional surrender you're going to have to go back and bring back the leader and um he said, how is Portrait Pizzi holding up well? And they had made a mistake and thought that he was actually um, shot instead of Connolly. They also thought that Countess Markovic was there and she wasn't. Um, so she went back and they had a, um, a discussion, another discussion. They'd had a council award. They had another discussion um, and they wrote the, the letter of surrender thing. There's still arguments about where the surrender was. You see, it took part in there was just outside there was there was the the signing of it which is on one side and then there was the ceremonial handing over the sword and the photograph that was taken uh, the iconic photograph but she stepped back um uh, she stepped back because she um didn't want to be seen she knew herself uh, partly that she wa- she wasn't going to be ki- she wasn't going to be uh, she'd already got a pardon if she took the letter of surrender around she'd been given a pardon so she knew she wasn't probably going to be incarcerated or at least not for long and also that um, you know so what was the point she didn't want to give them dissatisfaction so she thought very very quickly in her mind I'm not going to give them dissatisfaction of being in the in the British paper also um, I, I don't particularly want to be known you know I mean she'd family to think about and she'd also she was very active still afterwards as well so she was more used if she wasn't seen so I think she'd had that presence of mind to step back out of the photograph and um, you know and not not to, so the was airbrushing was done at the skirt. Her, yeah. Oh, she, she did. She regretted okay, it later yeah. in life. I think she regretted it because, um, like most of the women, they they were forgotten about and their role was forgotten about and they didn't get the equal Ireland that they expected. I mean, it was quite um, unique in the time. And you think that women didn't even have a vote. The suffragettes were fighting for a vote for women. And here they were, where um, they had a proclamation for the new state of Ireland where Irish men and Irish women were mentioned and where women were given very much an equal role mm. um, in 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 um, in the Easter Rising. You know, they, they some of them um, took up arms and some of them didn't, but the same with the men. But they had very much an equal footing and they were very much respected. And, you know, and I, I think uh, they felt afterwards that um, they were ignored. Uh, some of them weren't, that did apply for pensions didn't get them. Some of them didn't apply for pensions. I know she didn't apply for a pension because she didn't recognise um, the type of state. And they're, that they're really only stories that we're hearing recently like in the last five years I would say that we're really only hearing the stories and when you think about that final scene as it played out in Moore Street I I thought about it when I was reading about her the other day is that in that building most of those people were executed most of the men were executed Mm -hmm. so the actual witnesses to that were the women that were there to those conversations and to the surrender that happened as well but obviously people never media journalists never spoke to them over the years very much did they they were kind of absent well they didn't speak themselves I know mm. that um, I know that Elizabeth didn't speak much uh, my mother would have gone to visit her and my grandfather would have spoken about her to me and I'd ask him for stories and he used to tell stories about um you know, about later on, about men being hidden under the beds and in the maternity hospital and all sorts of stories like that and her getting into a bit of trouble over some tea and thing. I don't know, yeah. but anyway, <laughs> have to pay a fine. Yeah, so yeah. I'd heard stories like that, mm. but I know she didn't talk very much about it. And I think that that's by having a companion like Julia that she could speak to her. And they used to speak to each other because people have told me, oh, you know, we, we um, 
you know, that their father or, or you know, their, their uncle or something or great uncle knew her and that they would have met and spoke. So I think people that were involved spoke to each other, but they didn't speak didn't outside, speak outside that it, circle. Yeah, because there's maybe a fear about that. Yeah, they, then, yeah. yeah, they sort of kept it quiet amongst themselves. So they kept the sort of within the friendships that they had. Um, but I mean, there was there was 320 uh, even in the at that came out of the or Moore Street when they came out on yeah, the surrender. Right. Yeah, yeah, so there yeah. was a but lot of people the there. Like, yeah, you, know, you think don't think of I think the yeah, British yeah, Army yeah. got quite a shock. Okay, well, listen, I, I don't mean to cut you short, and I think we can, we can when we open it out into discussion. Yeah, I know loads yeah. of people have loads of questions. Um, so just to say thanks to to Donna for that. Okay, and uh, I think Fergus, are you ready for another one? Or this is a song called "The Soldiers of Coming Them On." It was written the week before the rising by uh, Brian O'Higgins and um, <clears throat> he he actually fought in the rising uh, and uh, I came to, I heard this song when I was a, a young man because by marriage I was related to uh, uh, two sisters who'd been coming to Mon uh, their 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 um, their maiden names was Healy they were from around the Fibsborough area and when they were married one of them was married to a relation of mine called O'Bourne and another one was married to a Kinsler and that the, the Kinsler woman was a, a neighbour of my grandmother and occasionally we'd have hoodies and that sort of thing and this song was occasionally sang I hadn't heard it since then I've never heard anybody sing this song since then and um I had a garbled version of it in my head from you know these memories that are implanted, but when I actually got the the song itself, it's quite different from what my memory of it was. All right, but that shows you the the foibles of uh, human memory, right? Oh, <clears throat> all honour to Ogligna Heron, all praise to the men of our race. Who in days of betrayal and slavery Saved Ireland from shame and disgrace But do not forget in your praising Of them and the deeds they have done Their loyal and true-hearted comrades The soldiers of Kamanamon they stand for the honour of Ireland as their sisters in days that are gone. And they'll march with their brothers to freedom, the soldiers of Kamanamon. No great-hearted daughter of Ireland Who died for her sake long ago Who stood in the red gap of danger Defying the Sassanach foe Was ever more valiant or worthy Of glory in high-sounding ran than the comrades of Oglig Neheran, the soldiers of Kamanamon. They stand for the honour of Ireland as their sisters in days that are gone. And they'll march with their brothers to freedom, the soldiers of Kamanamon. 
Oh, I beat the heart of her mother The day she has longed for is nigh When the sunshine of joy and of freedom Shall glow in the eastern sky And none shall be honoured more proudly That morning by chieftain and clan Than the daughters who served her in danger the soldiers of Kamanaman. They stand for the honor of Ireland as their sisters in days that are gone. And they'll march with their brothers to freedom, the soldiers of Kamanaman. Brilliant. Thanks again, Fergus, for that. That was excellent. A song I've never heard before as well. So um, it's great to hear all these old songs again. We're going to open it out into uh, a discussion. Thank you very much. I wonder, could I ask Donna maybe to tell us just a little bit about Elizabeth O'Farrell after the Rising? Well, after the Rising, um, she went back to do uh, midwifery in Hollow Street Hospital. Um, and uh, then uh, she set up a nursing home then on um, Lower Mount Street. And uh, she also would have done some, um, um, she would have tended to women at home for home births as well. So she would have been a district nurse going around uh, as well as having the, the nursing home. And uh, so that's really, so she, you know, had her own means. Um, Julia Grannon helped her out there as well. Um, so uh, so she had her own means really. So that's what she did. Um, uh, she she was she did keep active and she did keep interested in politics and um there's there's a few letters that she wrote to the paper um when she thought that something wasn't quite right and she did speak at an event uh, in Stevens Green not that long before she died um so yeah so that's that was her there was no real place for women in politics after that i suppose in terms of when uh, de valera got to power because he wasn't quite as open as the other leaders of the proclamation were. To, well, to he was the one that, involved. yeah, well, he was the yeah. one that wouldn't allow anybody into his uh, garrison, any women. And uh, when she arrived with the surrender, he, he sort of thought, what, you know, is a woman doing arriving here? So she said, after all her trouble, she he said, you know, you'll have to go and get the commander to to uh, impart this because I, I won't listen to a woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then obviously his friendship with Archbishop McQuaid then kind of uh, cemented that relationship as well, let us say. Um, yeah, I, so are there any other questions? I just want to ask, I want to ask uh, Padraig and Donna a question. Uh, not the same question. Just <laughs> Padraig, on, on Luton, uh, you gave us details of the amount of people arrested for Luton, uh, but it was people shot as well for Luton, and we know who shot them, and was it by, by the rebels or was it by the British Army? Um, also, you mentioned St. Andrews, that the, a lot of the loot was stored in St. Andrews in, in Pier Street, I think that is. Um, do you know sort of what was in that? Because you mentioned that the force there was crimes of hunger. So uh, just what what is the relation to, to the basic food stuffs that, that were being uh, looted yeah. and good other stuff that obviously wouldn't normally belong in a Dublin sure. ten tenement? And sorry, yeah. I'll just ask Hopefully Donna as well. As well. Um, just Donna, on the Save Moore Street, uh, you mentioned that there's a court case going on at the moment. Can you just elaborate on that? Is that to save one building, two buildings, or the whole street? Okay, we're just we're just going to yeah. stay away Sorry. from the Save Moore Sorry. Street stuff just yeah. at the moment. <laughs> but uh, we can to. ask the, the other question. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, just on the food, most of the food was found in people's homes. Uh, a lot of people then gave evidence whether they were cover, trying to cover themselves or not. They'd say, well, I bought uh, all this bread or I bought these clothes from a young lad in the street for twopence or fivepence or a shilling. Uh, so that was one way of covering themselves. Most of the stuff, though, found in the churches was uh, of a more valuable nature, uh, jewellery, uh, especially gold, anything gold, um, but other forms of jewellery uh, and, and, and more expensive uh, items that have been stolen from shops obviously were hidden in these places with a view to, you know, selling them on yeah. uh, later. Uh, so the, the, that, that's, the, the, that's the big uh, the difference between the, the two locations. Okay. But it was very much poverty. There was a young lad, Featherstone, he's mentioned in Joe uh, Duffy's book, and he's the only one we, we are pretty certain was killed as a result of his looting activities. But he was shot on the corner of Parnell Street and uh, Dominic Street where he lived. Uh, and his family apparently were very ashamed of what had happened and uh, wouldn't talk about it afterwards. But I think we have to accept a very significant number of people who were killed either were shot or killed by artillery fire or by falling buildings or by fire. Uh, caught in fires. I think we have to accept quite a few of those were looting, uh, quite a lot of civilians. 485, maybe 500 people uh, died uh, that we know of, buried in Glasnevin, and there's nearly 100 more buried in Dean's Grange, and I'm sure there are others in other hospitals, and that's not counting the military. There were we know there were 67 rebels killed. We know there were about 113 military and police killed. Um, those are the basic figures. And we know about 2,500 civilians were, were injured. Uh, so they're quite significant figures. But even saying that, if you look at the death rates in Dublin, the 16 rising doesn't affect the death rates uh, very significantly. So many people were dying. The big killers in Dublin, as elsewhere, were, was a, a Spanish flu epidemic that came in 1918, 1919. Porik, I wanted to ask you about um, looting and looters from the Liberties area. Now, there was a story that there was a, a, a CC, you know, a, a curate from around there, said to the, some of the looters to bring back the goods. I don't know whether they have heard that, but I was just wondering about the looters from the Liberties. Uh, Yeah, I'm sorry, I thought I'd brought them with me. I haven't brought the names and addresses, but what I can tell you uh, is that um, the Liberties were one of the big areas. The biggest single area, for some reason, was around Pierce Street. Um, I think in Pierce Square, uh, what is now Pierce Square, uh, had the record uh, of 40, it was then Queen Square, had the record of 42 women arrested for looting or illegal possession. Um, but all the north in the city um, had very high numbers uh, of looters. Uh, the liberties, uh, there were some women seemed to be more active in looting as opposed to illegal possession there. But as I say, the, the police were in the barracks for most of that time. Uh, and they, um, they, 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 the, only, the only significant arrests were on the very first day of the rising in what was then College Street Station, where a lot of men were carrying fur coats from Mansfield furriers. Uh, and they were, they were so confident and so brazen, they were walking past the police station, so rather foolishly from their point of view. So a number of the G Division ran out and grabbed them 
and uh, dragged them into the station. Uh, they were the only arrests made for looting actually during the rising. And another interesting thing, if you look at police records, is the G Division is famous now uh, for the, as the detective division, as a special branch, as it were, who were shot by Michael Collins' squad. But in fact, the vast majority of the G Division didn't weren't involved in that. They were involved in ordinary detective work. So you see them arresting people, but for ordinary mundane crimes, not for political work. So that's the end of the discussion. And... Um, I just want to say thank you to Donna, Donna Cooney for coming and thank you to Corrick as well. I hope everybody got something. I thought it was really interesting, some really new stuff, which is what we want. We want to look at new aspects and new elements around women and 1916 and the situation at that time. I should have mentioned, sorry, very quickly, if anyone's interested in the police records, they're all going online with UCD on April the 18th. So you'll be able to look up any members of your family who are involved in crime yeah great (laughs) Uh, so so we're just going to have a final song from Fergus and thank you to everybody for coming along Um, uh, this is a song that most of you will have heard it was written 50 years after the rising by a Cork man named uh, Patrick Galvin and um, he wrote this song, and it was recorded originally by Christy Moore in the, I think, in the late '60s, and um, in the, I, I, it was on his album Prosperous, and um, I emigrated in the uh, around that time. I, I went off to live in Australia, and um, I, I developed a renewed interest in my uh, culture and heritage when I was in Australia and I, I wanted to sing this song but I didn't have the recording and the internet wasn't available so I tried to rebuild it from memory um, and it had two effects. When I was married at that time to a very strong feminist so I had to be very careful when I was uh, putting songs together that um, I tried to reflect uh, a non-sexist attitude. Uh, and so as I was putting this song back together again in my own head, um, this is what this is what I wrote. <clears throat> oh, where, oh, where is our James Connolly? Where, oh, where can that gallant man be? He has gone to organize the workers and strike a blow against slavery. And where, oh, where is the citizen army? Where, oh, where can that gallant band be? They have gone to join the great rebellion and strike a blow against tyranny. And who, oh, who does lead that band? Who, oh, who does lead that band? Who but our own James Connolly, the hero of the working clan. Yeah.
Did you enjoy the series and what did you think of the series of talks and what did you think of it? I did. I enjoyed it very much actually. I uh, I got a lot out of it. There were lots of different aspects of it that I didn't know about um, and it was very clearly explained the background uh, of the time and also the, the personalities really really brought it to life. The, 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 the speakers are very good. And did you think it was a worthwhile exercise to... Um to do these series of talks? Definitely. I think what's come out of the last uh, while really when, you know, things have been the stories of 1916 and the surrounding years have, have come out um, the silence uh, that was before the silence about the women um, is no more really. Lots of stories and books um, have been written recently and I think the talks really um, are the icing on the cake. It's good to get people listening to it and uh, people knowing a little bit more about what went on. And do you think that you leave these talks with a different opinion of what happened in 1916? Probably a different opinion of what happened after 1916. Um, I have read a lot about what went on around that time and actually you know all the the speakers have reinforced that uh, you know what I've read about but afterwards um, again it hasn't been spoken about that much and I've looked into things I, I've, I've come away from here kind of bo- boiling a little bit I have three daughters and uh, uh, thinking about their rights and thinking about well we've come far since the 70s but there was such a dark age between you know what happened after 19 16 and maybe the 50s you know or the 70s that uh, it was that it was that period I really started looking into after these talks so yeah you know really opened my eyes to that out out went the British and in came the bishops unfortunately This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.